1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
2: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest at this hour is Tom Anderson. Uh, Tom is a renowned financial planning expert. He's the founder and CEO of Supernova Companies, which is a financial technology company that provides a platform for managing both assets and liabilities. And he's written several books. His new one is called The Value of Debt in Building Wealth. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you very much, Jordan. Great to be here. So just give a little bit of background on your background before we get to the the book itself.
3: Well, I sure appreciate the opportunity. Um, From the Midwest, uh, born and raised actually in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Went to school in uh, St. Louis at Washington University. And I came out and worked in investment banking for a while. And then I ended up moving to the wealth management side of the industry. And um, when I did that, I realized a lot of financial advisors are trying to differentiate themselves by talking about assets and asset allocation. And I realized there's a huge opportunity to kind of think and act like a CFO and, and really kind of manage both sides of the balance sheet. And so that's been my, my life quest uh, ever after has been trying to uh, apply corporate finance ideas uh, to, to really helping people have the highest probability of success with the least risk using all the tools and resources available to them. So this new book you have called The Value of Debt and
2: Building Wealth is trying to kind of challenge conventional wisdom. How are you trying to challenge conventional wisdom with this book?
3: Well, I think uh, a lot of people are very debt averse. And so I think the traditional glide path is people say uh, debt is bad, but I'm going to use it for something in my life. I'm going to use it for a, a student loan. I'm going to use it for a home loan. I'm going to use it to buy a car. And then I'm going to just try to get rid of it as fast as I possibly can. And then uh, I'm going to save for retirement. Uh, I I think that's essentially how how the normal path is. Yes. When you do the math on that, uh, it just it doesn't work out. Uh, What happens is you end up compounding your money for a very short period of time. And my premise is that what you should be doing is building up your liquidity, your savings earlier in life. Uh, some debt should be eliminated as quickly as possible, but some debt is good debt. Don't get rid of that good debt. And the book mathematically proves this is a higher probability of success. Does it depend on the interest rate of what the debt is asked, whether you should pay it off more quickly or more slowly? Absolutely. I break debt into three different categories, what I call oppressive debt, working debt, and enriching debt. And that is the driving factor of whether or not you should keep it.
2: So, look, explain what those three are, and roughly what kind of interest rates are in those three different categories.
3: Yeah, oppressive debt is going to be any debt that has an interest rate greater than 10 percent, I'd even venture to say kind of greater than eight percent. So examples of this would be things like credit card debt, or heaven forbid a payday loan, or you know things in, in that category. If you have credit card debt at 15 percent, uh, if you step in and, and pay that off, you get a guaranteed return of. 15%. Uh, and so I don't know any financial investment that can do that for you. You need to get out of oppressive debt as, as quickly as you possibly can.
2: So you're saying never have, if you can avoid it, credit card debt, payday loans, anything over 8%, basically,
3: right? Absolutely. Step. Uh, uh, it's not even step one, z- step zero in all of the phases of life that I sketch out in the book is to eliminate oppressive debt. Any debt at a rate greater than 8 to 10%, get rid of it as fast as you can.
2: Okay. And what is the second category? What are the interest rates and what kind of debt counts
3: counts in the second category? The second category is going to be what I call working debt. And so, you know, the best example might be a a mortgage. And let's say that your mortgage is at four or 5% and your CPA says to you, hey, that's actually fully tax deductible based on your tax bracket. So maybe your after-tax cost of that is three or 4%. Well, this is a different category of debt. It's not debt that's at you know, at 15%, you can't get a return like that. But at 3%, if I stepped in and paid that down, well, I'm losing all of my liquidity and flexibility and I'm getting a guaranteed return of 3%. So we need to do more math around it. And so generally the category of working debt will be debt that has an interest rate somewhere between prime, which is, you know, around 4% in this environment and maybe that 6 uh, to 7%. You just need to do a little bit more math the closer it is to that, you know, four or five percent and the more that it's tax deductible, the less likely I am to want to rush in and pay that down. So I guess student loans would count because they're, if they're
2: federal student loans, they're going to be in that four to five percent area. So that's one you think should be paid off more
3: slowly. You know, there's over a trillion dollars of student debt. And what has been interesting as I've learned more about it is there isn't exactly a, a one size uh, fits all. So you are absolutely correct. Some uh, federal student loans are subsidized and have really compelling tax advantages to them, and they fall into that working category, uh, even the en- enriching category where the interest rate is, is below 3 or 4 uh, percent. Uh, some of them are amazing. A lot of people have um, private student loans or uh, unsubsidized and potentially not tax deductible loans that might have a rate closer to uh, 7 or 8, and, and some students actually ended up having to put money on their uh, credit card. So here again, it's kind of not a one-size-fits-all. If you're in a student loan at a high rate, get rid of it. If it's at a medium rate, uh, you know, use a level head up to it. If it's at a low rate, uh, you absolutely do not, do not want to pay that down quickly because you need the liquidity and flexibility. And what would be some examples of enriching debt? Enriching debt is going to be the category where you're choosing to have the debt. It's at a low rate, uh, potentially lower than prime and you could pay it off at any point in time, but you want the liquidity and the flexibility that's associated with it. So um, uh, some categories of student debt that have that interest rate below three or 4%, um, and some high net worth individuals have access to a type of borrowing called securities-based lending, um, which can have a rate that generally starts at prime and goes down from there, uh, sometimes rates as low as 2%.
2: Okay, we're gonna go to a break right now, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Tom Anderson. Uh, He is the founder and CEO of Supernova Companies, and he's also the author of a book called The Value of Debt in Building Wealth. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Hey, thank you very much, Jordan. Appreciate it. So we were talking about enriching debt, and one example of that is margin debt, where you borrow against the value of your securities because that's very low interest. What would be some other examples of enriching
3: debt? Yeah, so there's, uh, uh, many financial institutions have a product called securities-based lines of credit, which is a kissing cousin of margin, but margin is typically priced based off of how much money you have borrowed and um, uh, is you know, oftentimes used to leverage up a securities portfolio. Uh, many financial institutions will actually make clients who have liquid investable assets loans at very low rates uh, if they're secured by the underlying securities. So it's similar to margin, but it's structurally a little bit different.
2: So basically what you're saying is if you have a low interest rate, you can pay it off more slowly. If you have a higher interest rate, you should pay it off more quickly. Now, would that change if interest rates started rising? I mean, the Federal Reserve is talking about raising interest rates maybe three times in 2017. So rates could definitely be going up on what you're paying, although they're probably not going to be going up on what you're earning. Uh, What you're earning on CDs and savings accounts and money market funds is probably going to stay very, very low for a long time. Does all that change? how quickly you want to pay off your debt in this environment?
3: Yeah, so there's a couple different parts to paying off debt. One part, of course, is the rate, which is the easiest one to address. If it's at a high rate, you definitely want to get rid of it. Um, if it's at a lower rate, the answer is it uh, it depends. And I provide a mathematical framework in the, in the book for evaluating uh, it depends and, 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 you know, what steps you specifically take. But Let's say that I have uh, student debt of um, $50,000 and it's running at a rate of uh, 6%. Um, if, if I stepped in and paid that down, because let's say my cash is earning, you know, zero and that, and that, that those are the two worlds that we have. The second you pay down your student debt, uh, if you lose your job or want to move or get married or buy a house, you can't reaccess that money. So you need to not just value the rate. You need to value the benefit of having liquidity and flexibility. And so often people will buy insurance, right? Like I have a life insurance policy and if I die, money goes on to my kids, which is great for them, but not great for me. Um, Nothing is insurance like money in the bank. And so that's the kind of next framework. Now, the second part of your question, which we can come into more, is what about in a higher interest rate environment, but in all environments, low interest rate or higher interest rate, people should value liquidity, and that's what we need to put a framework around.
2: So how how do you have the balance? I guess this is what you're talking about in your book, the balance between the appropriate amount of liquidity and the appropriate amount of working
3: and uh, responsive debt. Yeah. So I, um, uh, what I do is I basically break life into uh, four stages, what I call the, the launch phase, uh, the independence phase, the freedom phase, and the equilibrium phase. And I look at your your balance sheet as a function of your net worth. And so in each of those different phases, you value liquidity differently. Um, the launch phase is when you have a net worth less than 50% of your annual income. And when you're in that scenario, so many people are so check to check, uh, they don't have liquidity and flexibility. They rush in to pay off their debt, and as a result um, – uh, are just literally skating on thin ice. In that zone, I think you really need to value liquidity and flexibility. In the later stages, you might then later evaluate to pay off that debt later in your life.
2: So that's, that's like the 20s and 30s, people getting, getting their kind of career started. And then talk about the second phase, which is the independence phase. That's like people in the 40s and 50s, and, and what, how is the, the balance different from liquidity and debt at that stage?
3: yeah so I used to um uh, really try to put a lot of age overlap with it, um, but it's amazing. Uh, roughly fifty percent of America has a net worth of less than fifty thousand um, dollars. and um, uh, more than fifty percent of America really kind of lives in a check to check type framework. So outside of age, I, I've try to have ideas that transcend every age, but the first phase really is your net worth is less than fifty percent your annual income. So you have make fifty thousand dollars, your net worth is less than 25,000, you make 100,000, your net worth is less than 50,000. You need liquidity during that zone. But the second zone is when you're in the independence phase. This is when your net worth is between 50% and two times your annual income. So for easy math, if you make $100,000 and your net worth is somewhere between 50,000 and 200,000, I think we have a different group of prioritization we need to be looking at.
2: And then the third category is freedom, uh, where you have what you call a medium nest egg. Again, what what dollars are we talking about here and what age group? You're typically going to be in the freedom category.
3: Yeah, so freedom um, uh, from an age category, typically uh, you're going to be in your late 30s and your 40s. Your net worth is uh, two times your annual income uh, and between two and five times. So if you have $100,000 of income, again for easy math, your net worth is somewhere between $200,000 and $500,000. Now you're beyond just that, that check-to-check environment. You're, you're really starting to break through. But, but the problem is you have a massive debt to your future self. And that's what a lot of people are forgetting is that when they retire, they need to create uh, that future retirement income. And that's the big focus of the book.
2: And then the fourth category is the equilibrium category when you have a large nest egg. Um, so at that point, do you want your debt completely paid off?
3: So here's where you're, you're, in equilibrium, you're really kind of moving between 5 and 20 times your um, annual income. And so if you think about this, if you have $100,000 of annual income, you have a net worth between $500,000 and $2 million. So just to answer the question on the extreme, if you have an annual income of $100,000 and your net worth is more than $2 million, then you don't need debt. Uh, mathematically, it would be very hard for me to prove that you need strategic debt for any single reason. But when you're earlier in that zone, this is what I was talking about before. You have a debt to your future self. You need to build up your retirement assets so that you have a credible shot of being able to replace your income throughout your life. And until you have built up those assets, uh, I think you want to use all of the tools and resources available to have the highest probability of success And having some debt, the right type of debt struck the right way, can materially increase your probability of success.
2: And so you're saying what people are actually doing is spending their extra liquidity, paying down their mortgages, and not investing. So by the time they get to retirement, they're classic house-rich, cash-poor kind of situation, and they don't have time to have their money build up during retirement because they, they
3: don't have the time to recover if things go badly, and that's where they get stuck. Is that basically what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. Everybody races down to pay down their debt early in their life, and then they kind of spend 10 years saving for retirement, and they wake up and say, oh my gosh, I'm not on track for retirement. Well, I could have mathematically told you that was what would have happened. If you would have built up that savings earlier and let that money compound for 30 years instead of 10 years, and then if you want, the day that you retire, you should have enough money in the bank to pay off all of your debts. That's my goal. But until you have that, why would you pay off any of it? That's the theme.
2: But the vast majority of Americans don't have close to enough to pay off their debt. They, I, mean, I think there was some statistic recently, 55% can't even put together $1,000. I mean, they're not even close to that. So w- what have they been doing wrong all along? They
3: haven't been investing to make their money grow? Yeah. The vast, very few Americans, uh, 80%, don't have uh, even $100,000 of liquid after-tax investment assets. Um, most Americans are in the launch or independence phases. Which, you know, congratulations, and there's a lot of great things about that. But if you are in those phases, if your net worth is, you know, less than two times your annual income, even if it's, you're in the freedom phase, it's less than five times your annual income, you need to build up a substantial nest egg for your retirement. So many boomers are massively undersaved for retirement, and yet they're racing to pay down their debt because that's what they've been taught. And my theme is stop that race. Build up assets. You have a higher probability of making it. What you're doing won't work.
2: I would think that part of the problem has been people have been scared off by the stock market, the volatility, even though it's been booming for the last few years. Some people are still kind of emotionally traumatized from what happened 2008, 2009. And they've been sitting out the entire bull market in cash, basically, because they're so worried about it. Is there a, a psychological, emotional aspect
3: to this as well? There's absolutely a psychological, emotional aspect about this. There's uh, two parts. Um, one is that my ideas are not about um, uh, you know building up cash and then going out and buying stupid stuff that you can't afford. So from a psychological perspective, I do assume that rather than paying down your debt, you will save. So that's part one. If you won't save that money and you go spend it, then this this doesn't work. The other part to the psychological aspect is you're right. A lot of people you know, uh, want to buy low and sell high, yet they do the opposite. Uh, I'm terrified to release a book called The Value of Debt and Building Wealth when uh, U.S. stocks are basically at all-time highs and bonds are at all-time highs as low. I'm very fearful for markets on a go-forward basis and think that investors need to be extremely thoughtful about their investment strategy. And I place a few bets in the book around this to try to make that point clear.
2: Now, there are two ways to access your liquidity in your house. One is a home equity line of credit, which is liquid. You can put it in and out as you like. And -hmm. the other is reverse mortgage. Do you think those are good ways for people to access, say they've been doing everything wrong, (laughs) have been putting their money in and buying down their, paying down their mortgage. Are those two good techniques for people to use uh, leverage in a positive way?
3: Well, I very much like home equity lines of credit because um, they're they're wonderful uh, reserves for people to have to access in different times. Uh, typically, it's going to be a very low cost of debt. And in some circumstances, it's tax deductible, but people need to be cautious that it is an add back for something called uh, AMT. So it's not always tax deductible, um, but it is generally a better form of debt. With reverse mortgages, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a head scratcher to me. If, if I have a a mortgage they've just taken out at a generational low, and I I pay down my house, you anytime you pay down debt, you get a guaranteed rate of return equal to the after-tax cost of that debt. So if I pay down debt at 3%, and then I wake up retired and I say, Oh, I now own my house, I'm gonna take a reverse mortgage, and now I'm just gonna borrow back up against that. That doesn't make sense to me. What what what's a much better path? Forget about averaging uh, 10% or 8%, if you average 6% in your investments throughout time, and you're able to borrow at 2 or 3%, and you capture that spread throughout your life, you would never need to do the reverse mortgage. And I, I prove that in the book. So in some cases, they can be okay. Uh, they're very tricky. A lot of people don't know what they're getting into. And I would rather that people have the liquidity, flexibility, and assets to never have to go into a reverse mortgage in the first place.
2: What are the downsides of a reverse mortgage that most people don't understand?
3: Um, I think a lot of people uh, think that they're getting a little bit of uh, uh, free lunch. And um, I think that the the risks of um, uh, that are associated with interest rates, price movement, and uh, how much money they can take from it, uh, they work very well um, until they don't work. And that's what people don't spend enough time focused on how will I unwind this? What does the downside look like? And um, uh, 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 what, what, what is truly happening to my home equity along the way?
2: And they're disinheriting their children as well, because the main asset they've built up is not going to be passed to the children, it's going to be passed to the bank, basically. Absolutely. At a pretty high interest rate. I think they have, you know, four, five, six percent interest rates, and you're not getting a tax deduction for that.
3: Um, the, the path that I outlined shows how there's a far superior one to not having to enter the product in the first place. Uh, so you should instead build up the liquidity, flexibility, and resources where you, where you never need to do that. Um, and if someone can mathematically show that there's a, a better path using it, I would be all ears in looking at it.
2: What would be the um, effect of, on your strategies if you had a prolonged bear market? We have not had one for a long time. But some people would say it sounds like even you are saying they were at all time highs and it's kind of a risky market. Say you weren't getting six percent; you were having negative, you were having losses in the stock market for a long time. Would that change your view of of how you should use debt and building assets when you're not building and assets in fact are falling in value?
3: Yeah. So. Uh- Um, debt in itself is never uh, good or bad. It's just a magnifier of the decisions that you make. So if you make bad decisions, they will look worse. And if you make good decisions, they will look uh, better. And so using debt and having overpriced assets is is never going to be a good strategy. Um, uh, We will have a bear market. That's a fact. Uh, um, uh, At some point in the future. Now, who knows when? I think it'll be sooner rather than later. Um, I think 2008 will not be the worst uh, crisis in any of your listeners uh, life. Um, I think that uh, uh, we'll have at least two 50% corrections in um, uh, equities over the next 25 years. Um, I think there will be wars. I think there'll be hurricanes. I think there'll be floods. I think there'll be um, many bad things will happen over time. You need to make sure that you have an investment philosophy that is prepared to navigate uh, that volatility. It needs to be in your base case.
2: So how does that work? So say you have a major bear market. You were saying that you want to assume a 6%, at least 6% long term rate of return. If in fact you're in a bear market and you're losing money all the time, how does that change the calculus of how much debt you want if you're in fact
3: you're not earning 6% of your money? Yeah. So what happens is that when we use that term bear market, Um, if all of your assets are in one thing that goes uh, down a bunch, it's going to be bad. Uh, So the way that we want to design a portfolio is that you have um, yin and yang. And so, for example, in 2008, everyone likes to say diversification didn't work. Uh, Everything went straight down 30, 40, 50 percent. Well, that's just not true. Anyone who says that is a a liar or naive. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Treasury bonds went up 30 percent. Gold did have some volatility in the period, but the general trend was a stunning price movement. Uh, up. Um, There were assets that did very, very well in 2008. Just because an investor didn't own them doesn't mean that they didn't uh, exist. I think that most U.S. investors are very concentrated in U.S. assets, so lots of U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds, but there are many assets around the world that are trading at head-scratching cheap levels today, Um, but most people don't own them. Just because you don't own them doesn't mean that they don't exist.
2: So the 6% you're talking about is not a pure stock market return. It's a diversified portfolio return you're talking about.
3: It is. And so I talk about it in the book. I show a portfolio uh, that I believe has a high probability of inflation plus 4%. If inflation is around 2%, uh, what you're targeting is you know uh, an approximate 6% uh, rate of return. And I, I do some comparisons showing the volatility of just stocks on their own or the volatility of a 70-30 portfolio, which has a high You can project the risk of a 70-30 portfolio well, but you cannot project the return. Um, I think a diversified approach that has, you know, just like baseball, uh, they cover all of planet Earth. Uh, The U.S. is only in the mid-20s of global GDP, less than 50% of equity market capitalization. There's an incredible environment around us called the rest of the world, and there are many attractive values. Uh, I think that people should cover all their bases.
2: So what would be the best way to do that with a... Portfolio of index funds or exchange-traded funds. People, for the most part, are not going to be individual stock pickers. How do they get that diversified global portfolio you're talking about?
3: Yeah, I think there's. There, um, uh, it's it's very clear that uh, individual stock picking uh, is is challenging. I'd point to you know Eugene Fama's Nobel Prize on on the topic, um, and I point to uh, Professor Schiller's uh, Nobel Prize on valuation um, that. If you're trading at a high valuation, you might not want to own as much of it. If you're at a lower valuation, you might want to own a little bit more. It's kind of the buy low, sell high Nobel Prize. I think you can combine those two things with the general common sense of keep fees low. And so if, if we, we look at that, what you want to do is uh, I like exchange traded funds, ETFs, um, index funds. Um, but you want to make sure that you're not concentrated in the United States. So you need to have U.S. stocks and bonds as a little bit. But what about emerging markets, developed international, emerging market bonds, uh, developed international bonds, commodities, real estate, global real estate, gold? All of these represent a, a diversified portfolio. Is this a service that you offer to help people put together such a diversified portfolio? It's a service that our firm offers, absolutely. It's about managing both sides of the balance sheet. And we provide some resources on our website that talk about, uh, you know, and I also try to talk about it in the book. We try to give as as much advice as we can to point how to build a a diversified portfolio. But, um, uh, uh, you know, the big thing is just helping people look at both sides of the balance sheet to have the highest probability of success. And what would
2: be a website for your supernova companies? People can find out more.
3: So, uh, supernovacompanies.com is uh, the uh, one that has information in asset strategies and resources that people can see. There's a lot of free tools uh, there. And then thevalueofdebt.com has information on each of the three books that we've uh, created. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, This
2: is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Tom Anderson. Uh, He is the CEO and founder at Supernova Companies uh, based in Chicago. And he's also the author of a book we're talking about called The Value of Debt. And Building Wealth. And again, the website for that book, valueofdebt.com. We'll be back after this.
4: Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour, Tom Anderson, is author of a book called The Value of Debt in Building Wealth. Uh, he also is the founder and CEO at Supernova Companies, based in Chicago. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Thank you, Jordan. So you were saying that what people are doing here or should be doing is kind of running their personal finances the way a chief financial officer would uh, run the finances of a company. Kind of expand on that a little bit.
3: Yeah. So um, if you think about it, uh, uh, you know, look at Apple, right? It's a it's a very very uh, successful company. Um, That company has uh, billions of dollars of cash. Uh, They also have recently been issuing billions and billions of dollars of debt. Why do they do that? Is it because the CFO doesn't have a strategy or a plan? Uh, Of course he does. Uh, the, The company is one of the most valuable companies in the world. And what happens is the company values the liquidity, the flexibility, and the tax benefits by managing both assets and liabilities. That's what all CFOs do. And I get it that there's a difference between people and companies, but I basically take corporate finance ideas and I make them more conservative when I apply them to uh, individuals. There have been a lot of Nobel Prizes and research on this, and I think that we can learn from strategies companies do to make our personal finance lives better uh, every day.
2: So they have a lot, I mean, as you say, Apple has billions of dollars in cash, but it's sitting there earning nothing. They're not investing at all in the business. They have a lot of cash and they're building up more cash because they've got positive cash flow all the time. When is too much cash a problem? And, and people criticized Apple for a long time. It wasn't paying dividends. It wasn't buying back stock. It was accumulating too much cash. You can accumulate
3: too much liquidity as an individual or a company. Is that correct? You definitely can. Uh, but I don't worry about that with respect to most people at all. Um, what's interesting is after 2008, uh, companies said, hey, uh, I am not going to get my back up against the wall ever again and have a bank dictate terms to me. Uh, I want more liquidity and more flexibility. And so all companies since 2008 have been building up lots of cash and lots of flexibility and an ability to uh, weather the next storm. People have said, you know what, debt was the evil that caused that crisis. I'm going to rush in to pay down all of my debt. And I think it's just interesting to kind of compare and contrast the uh, responses. Yeah, you know, to your earlier point on investing, um, you do not need to swing at every pitch. And so many of these companies that have these huge cash reserves, the next crisis that comes can, you know, be kids in a candy shop and 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 pick up a lot of great values. People that have not appropriately managed their finances are um, not only check to check; uh, they can't take advantage advantage of the crisis. And so I think we should learn from what it is that companies are doing. And you're saying
2: that there are going to be new crises coming. So building up some extra liquidity, both for companies and individuals, makes some sense.
3: Sure. An individual that's kind of part individual and part company, a gentleman named Sam Zell, who's been a very successful real estate investor and a, a billionaire. Um, what, what he does is he, he waits for things to be in crisis and he steps in and buys a whole bunch. And then when you kind of come to the top, he sells and goes to cash and then he kind of comes back in. But he's not afraid to hold cash. And I don't know Sam. I'm not speaking on his behalf. This is just public information. And um, investors are so hesitant to hold cash and wait for a good time to enter things. I I don't know why that is. Uh, um, People should be willing to build up cash reserves and arsenals. And then when things are head-scratchingly cheap, they should be willing to deploy and make those investments. But we tend to do the exact opposite.
2: There's an emotional element. When things are cheap, things have gone down to get cheap. (laughs) So people don't want to step in because they think it's going to go down further. And when it goes up, they feel better about it. They feel more comfortable putting money in, even though it's gone up a lot. It's more emotional than it is kind of rationality.
3: It It is emotional. And so that's where what you you have to do is say, well, what's my discipline process going to be? Things that are cheap uh, statistically will get cheaper. The odds of you entering at the low on anything is... Um, uh, about zero. Um, and, and so, you know, Warren Buffett often says that when he makes an investment, he's very comfortable with that investment. He almost expects it to fall an additional 20%. Um, but he looks for things that are, are cheap and represent value. And he also does sell a lot of things as they move up to different prices and has ways to take money off the table. We should learn from these things. And if people don't have the individual discipline, then hopefully a, a professional advisor can. But most important, the investment process that I outline in the uh, book is really a. I don't think anyone can truly time this. Uh, so it's an evergreen strategy of if you were just to cover all the bases, if the world was just like baseball, what would you do in any market environment at any point in time, and what might those probabilities of success look like? So we try to provide those tools as well.
2: Now you say that uh, as part of the book, that there's an online interactive tool. Uh, that has kind of artificial intelligence to help you do this. What is that tool about and kind of how does it all work?
3: Yeah, so basically what you do is you um, it's on the valueofdebt.com. If you click on tools, uh, we provide a couple that are out there, but this is the uh, uh, life calculator, and it's taking the ideas from the book and basically says, let me look at your uh, balance sheet. Let me look at your income and look at your assets. And then as money comes in at the kitchen table, what I find is a lot of people are – guessing, right? So you get a, a $50,000 year in bonus or $10,000 year in bonus. And people say, well, should I put it down on the car, put it down on the house, put it into a savings account, you know, go on a trip to Tahiti, you know, that people don't have a good framework for this. And so what the tool does is it first of all, kind of shows you which phase of life you are in, and then gives you guideposts to help you direct that future cash flow so that there's no more guessing. Nobody should be guessing with their money. They should have a, a a rational thought process around it. And then we mathematically prove why this approach is better.
2: So you're optimizing your money all the time. Should you pay down debt? Should you invest? Because people that tend to make these decisions without fully looking at all the alternatives. And that's what that tool is allowing you to do, you're saying.
3: That's exactly right. It's um, artificial intelligence Uh, using an an algorithm based on the Fibonacci sequence, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. It's the golden ratio uh, of balance in life. And and it just shows you, are you roughly in balance? You know, we know when our diets are in balance. We know when our exercise is in balance. This is balance to your financial life. And it just gives you guideposts.
2: And you're saying a lot of people are out of balance by having too much in assets, particularly their home, and not enough liquidity. And this would help you rewrite that balance in in the right way.
3: Yep, people look at it and they just say, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm way under balance. But that's because that's what conventional wisdom has taught us, is that uh, race to pay down that house, put money in your retirement plan, and live check to check. Well, when you do that, you feel check to check. It increases the stress in people's financial life, and nothing reduces stress like having money in the bank and not feeling check to check. you got to break the check to check cycle.
2: Now, there's a whole argument these days about what's called the fiduciary rule and the fiduciary standard. Uh, It had been moving ahead. It looks like under President Trump, it may be either scaled back a lot or potentially killed. Um, Do you think it's a good idea for financial advisors to have a fiduciary standard?
3: Yes, I think it's an outstanding idea. But I think that um, uh, I'm in full support of the fiduciary standard. I'm not in full support of it as it is currently written. Um, You cannot have a fiduciary standard if you're just giving advice on investments. Um, You can't do it if you're just giving advice on taxes, and you can't do it if you're just giving advice on debt. A proper fiduciary standard needs to look at the complete financial picture and how debt, taxes, and assets are all interrelated. If you choose one of the pieces, you are not doing a full service uh, uh, to the individual client. And so, as
2: currently written, how would the fiduciary rule change the interaction between clients? And financial advisors, for the better or the worse? Well, as
3: currently written, it's it's really about um, uh, uh, disclosure, and and so what happens is, um, cons- if you think about it, uh, some people like to go to the grocery store and um, pick out things and uh, uh, you know make their own food, um, and other people like to go to a restaurant and have everything prepared for them. And I think the financial services industry is is very much uh, the same way. Some people like to kind of do their own thing in, in more of a grocery store and other people like to have it served to them. The problem is that right now consumers don't know if they're in a restaurant or they're in a grocery store and they don't have the right disclosure on the, the quality of things. Am I just getting uh, Cheetos and ice cream or am I getting a, a, a balanced meal with someone who's looking out uh, uh, for my interest? Are they selling me what... they think I want or what I actually need. So this is a huge step forward in disclosure, which is essential to consumers in terms of their ability to make an informed decision. But the proper fiduciary rule would let people have choice because some consumers want different things, and so we need to accommodate choice. Uh, The other thing we need to accommodate is expertise, but that's what I am calling fiduciary rule 2.0.
2: So the current rule, I mean, people for the most part are talking about the asset side, there's not money in the liability side for an advisor to spend time figuring out how much debt you should be having. They, he doesn't make any money from that or commissions or asset management fees. So how could you get it so that the financial industry would actually have a, an interest in doing the liability side of the balance sheet where now they're all interested in the asset side?
3: So what I like to say about this is I, I kind of call it, you know, grocery store, restaurant, or pediatric neurosurgeon. So Um, uh, heaven forbid that you found yourself in front of a a, a pediatric neurosurgeon, a child brain surgeon, right? Someone who's doing brain surgery on children. Um, that's a risky procedure. And so what that doctor has to do is they have to use all of the tools and resources that are available to them to do an operation with the highest probability of success. And that operation may or may not be successful, but the doctor needs to be able to prove that they used all of the tools and resources to have the highest probability of success. Um, If you manage your life without managing both sides of the balance sheet, it is not possible to have the highest probability of success because the biggest determining factor in your net worth is the decisions that you make with respect to debt. So if a financial advisor doesn't embrace both sides of the balance sheet, it's not mathematically possible for them to deliver the highest quality advice. Uh, and so I think that that's where fiduciary standard 2.0 comes in is, you know, if, if people truly want advice that's all-encompassing, uh, it has to be on both sides of the balance sheet.
2: And what's actually going to happen? Do you think the fiduciary rule will be uh, weakened or eliminated or implemented? In this, in you know, What do you think is going to happen, actually, with the fiduciary rule? Uh,
3: um. It, you know, I've I've gone back and forth on it, but in either case, whether or not it, uh, uh, I think a modified version is likely what's to pass. If I just had to speculate, but I think that's potentially uh, detrimental to consumers, and the reason is they'll be under a perception that oh, now at least I have some disclosure on where I am, and they'll think that that then that disclosure is uh, uh, relates to expert advice, and I think that's unfortunate because um, uh, there are some truly remarkable advisors and planners that are looking at your life in an interconnected way. But um, the fiduciary rule as written, proposed, or being modified, I think could give a false sense of confidence to the consumer, which is maybe the worst case for everybody.
2: Some would say that the robo-advisor is the best solution, and those certainly seem to be gaining favor at a lot of different places. Does that is that a better way, a more objective way to provide advice, both on the liability and the debt side?
3: Well, I think the robo-advisors are doing an exceptional job on disclosure. I think they're also doing an exceptional job in lowering fees, not just in the composition of portfolios, but in the fee to the uh, consumer. I think the challenges are that a lot of them tend to embrace very US centric portfolios, which is uh, problematic uh, from our earlier uh, discussion, and they aren't managing both sides of the balance sheet or addressing the tax uh, situation. So, They're well-positioned for fiduciary standard 1.0. I think they have a long way to go if you ever had fiduciary standard 2.0. Very
2: good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Tom Anderson. Uh, He is the founder and CEO of Supernova Companies, and he's also the author of a book called The Value of Debt in Building Wealth. You can find out more at the website for the book, which is valueofdebt.com. There's some very useful online tools there. We'll be back after this.
4: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network.
0: We hear it and read about it every day in the news
1: What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business.
0: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Tom Anderson. Uh, He is an author of a book called The Value of Debt in Building Wealth. He's also the founder and CEO of Supernova Companies, a financial technology company based in Chicago. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks, Jordan. Um, people should make a decision on renting versus buying in maybe a more rational way that they're doing now. What, as you were saying, people get so much money put into paying down mortgages and getting becoming house poor, in effect, well, house rich but cash poor. How should they make a better decision on renting versus buying?
3: Yeah. So uh, I think in general, uh, people think that home ownership is uh, really fabulous and it should be something that everyone aspires to. And I'm I'm not completely sold on that. I I remember when I was young and I bought a house and I moved in and uh, the furnace went out and bam, I had to put $6,000 in and that just vaporized $6,000 from my bank account. And (laughs) uh, uh, my life didn't change. I just still had heat. And then Shortly thereafter, the uh, roof needed to be replaced, and more money came out of my account and and went into there. And, you know, homes have a um, a lot of expense and upkeep. And when you don't have liquidity and reserves, they can send a lot of curveballs in your life that you don't necessarily need. So sometimes I think people rush to buy them too early. Um, And I think that people oftentimes don't live in a house long enough. So I think you need to think about how long you're going to be in a house. And are you prepared for the curveballs that that house can send you along the way? So, when is it better to rent than buy? So, generally, uh, if you're planning on being in a property for less than five years, uh, the the rental math will 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 be stronger than the buy math, just because of the transaction costs of getting into that property, closing, getting out, uh, the commissions. You need to believe in a lot of appreciation uh, to overcome you know, the the, the depreciation and, and costs in a less than a five-year uh, period of time. The other thing is if it depends on the market that you're in. So if you're in, a, um, generally, that, that statement will be much more true the more urban the market you're in. Uh, if you get into some smaller markets and more rural places, sometimes the rent versus buy math might skew a little bit toward buy. And if you're handy, it could skew toward buy as well. But that's a good general rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, as
2: far as college, uh, parents today are not only putting assets into the college ed- education of the kids, but they're borrowing against their home equity with your HELOC loans. They're doing 401k loans. They're taking money for their IRAs. They're just leveraging themselves to the hilt for their kid's college so the kid doesn't take on too much college debt. In many cases, the, the grandparents are being drawn in as well. What is a better way, considering what the cost of college is today, to handle all that?
3: So first of all, uh, so I have three kids, um, and they're adorable. And, uh, you know, I I, I was just reviewing their homework and was literally thinking forward to I can't wait for them to go to college. And I'm super excited about it. Um, The first fact is that when they're born, uh, 18 years later, they should be going off to college. So if you start saving early, uh, there's a higher probability that you'll be on on track. I, I show these really neat tables in the book. But the power of saving and letting money cook for you for 18 years versus waking up in high school and saying, oh, my gosh, they're off to school in four years. I now need to start saving. It's very difficult with college costs today to, to save enough in a four-year period of time. You give it 18 years slash 22 through their senior year, and there's a much better chance. So part one is to uh, start early. Okay, and say you haven't done that, which
2: is what happens to a lot of people. <laughs> so today. Let's
3: say you haven't done that, which maybe. And they me. haven't
2: saved enough, and you know, college you saved is, enough is sixty thousand dollars a year or more. You know, and, and they just yep. haven't saved enough. What what is, what do people do not to get over leveraged in a case like that?
3: Yeah, so here, what I think you want to do is number one, you need to have a reasonable conversation in the household on what are expectations, because this will influence the child's uh, choice. So. Um, you know, there's an old story about the, uh, uh, blue jeans. Um, you know, you give a kid a credit card and say, go get a pair of blue jeans. Uh, you give a kid a hundred dollars and say, get a pair of blue jeans and bring back the change, or you give a kid a hundred dollars and say, go get a pair of blue jeans and you keep the change. Uh, they'll actually get three different pairs of, uh, blue jeans, which is pretty amazing because that's what they're shopping for. So kids choices, I think that they can, uh, if you have a fair conversation at home on responsibilities Uh, that's going to narrow the focus uh, uh, dramatically. And that's a huge part of it is the choice. And I think enough uh, uh, families don't have that conversation. Once you get to the bottom line cost, you want to get a framework around, well, how much of this debt is a reasonable amount to go toward the student? So that would depend on the degree, focus, and value that they're creating by going to college. What's that job they're going to have? And do they have a reasonable chance to repay it? And then schools are doing a better job of looking at parents' abilities to pay. But when a parent is taking out debt, obviously the more you can get federally subsidized and tax advantageous loans, that's going to be the first place to go. From there, you might want to turn to a home equity line of credit and or a line of credit versus your investment portfolio. If you happen to have more than $200,000 of liquid investable assets, that can by far be one of the best places to turn. Um, Those two then give you low cost debt Beyond that, you're going to start looking at non-subsidized loans, uh, personal loans, and so forth. And that's when you get to be, have to be very tricky at looking at what are the benefits of education versus the cost of education, a conversation we need to be having in this country.
2: In addition to the book you did called The Value of Debt in Building Wealth, you did another book called The Value of Debt in Retirement. Uh, just briefly, a lot of people go into retirement with debt. You're saying that not, that's not necessarily a bad thing if their money is growing for them. Is that the, the idea of the value of
3: debt in retirement? Yes. I break people into uh, three categories. Uh, so uh, people who need a rate of return of less than 3%. So let's say that you have a million dollar portfolio and you need less than $30,000 a year of income. Um, people that uh, need a return of 4 to 6%. So you have a million dollar portfolio and you need forty to $60,000 a year. And people that need more than 6%. So you have a million dollar portfolio and you need more than $60,000 a year. What I do in that book is I mathematically prove that debt can reduce risk, reduce taxes, uh, actually it can eliminate them, uh, and increase return. And that if you need a rate of return higher than 6%, you have to take risk. I get it that debt is risky. But the right type of debt the right way will actually mathematically increase the odds that you do not run out of money. So we put a framework that's specific and actionable to all people based on their needs of how much debt they should have and how it should be structured.
2: In about two minutes we have left, kind of sum up what a difference it will make in people's lives to to follow your philosophy of the correct value of debt versus liquidity as opposed to the traditional model.
3: So when I first wrote the book, I, I, I wrote it in a very math forward way and I called it um, uh, and I used these terms called uh, hypothesis, uh, which is something that you know my kids are kind of learning in school. But I think that the uh, hypothesis that conventional wisdom is right, that paying down debt is good and then saving for retirement later will work, the burden of proof is on conventional wisdom. What we do here is is lay out a very specific and actionable plan that mathematically proves you have a higher chance that you'll be on track. There will be recessions, there will be wars, bad things will happen. Those need to be in your base case uh, scenario. And so you should value the liquidity and the flexibility that that can provide you. And I think that uh, what people will see is a higher probability chance that they'll uh, be on track for their dreams.
2: Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Tom Anderson. He's the founder and CEO of the Supernova Companies based in Chicago author of two books called The Value of Debt in Building Wealth, which we spoke about, and also The Value of Debt in Retirement. There is a website for both of these, thevalueofdebt.com. Value, Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Tom. Thanks so much, Jordan. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show.